Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the Ejo podcast. I'm Joseph Weiler. And with me today are some of the leaders, past and present, of our sister institution, ESIL, the European Society of International Law. And we thought we would dedicate this podcast to ESIL, also given the pending annual meeting in Stockholm between the 9th and 11th of September. If you haven't registered, please do it now. Let me introduce my guests. Faye Pazatsis, Professor of Public International Law at the University of Athens, member of the ESIL board since 2014, and the current president of the society. Hélène Ruiz-Fabry is director of the Max Planck Institute for Procedure in Luxembourg, a longtime member of the board of EGIL. She was a member of the steering committee of ESIL from 1999 and president from 2006 to 2010. Marco Milanovic, professor of public international law at the University of Nottingham, and one of the editors of our blog, Egil Talk. He was a member of ESIL's board from 2010 to 2018, and for most of that time was secretary general and then vice president of the society. I should say something about the relationship between Egil and ESIL. They are sister institutions in some way. For example, ex officio, the president of ESIL is a member of the board of EGIL, but they are distinct institution. And therefore, I see myself both in some ways as an insider, but mostly as an outsider. And I would like to direct my first question to Helene, uh, and it concerns both the origin and the identity of ESIL. So Egil was born in a conversation between Bruno Sima and myself. If there's an American Journal of International Law, why shouldn't there be a European Journal of International Law? But grant me, and I think most fair-minded readers would accept this, that Egil has developed a very distinct identity. And in many ways, it's a different type of journal to the American Journal of International Law. ESIL was also born in that way, a conversation between Philip Alston and myself. If there's an American society of international law, why not a European society of international law? But how has it evolved? What makes it distinct? What are the the essential core of its identity? Helene. Yeah, indeed. From the start, it was, I think, uh, rather different in the sense that uh, it was a a bunch of people from various European countries, but not only European countries, because as you said, one feature of EZIL is that it started in a conversation from two people who were at the EUI, but were not European by origin. This was very striking to me that uh, the the impulse uh, came from outside to a certain extent, but at the same time it was from people having close ties with Europe and uh, the EUI played an important role in this regard not only because it was there that most of the people playing uh, um, an important role in the creation of the European society uh, were but it is also where they developed these ties which made the initiative uh, possible and so one feature of the European society is that in fact uh, although we may all have this idea of Europe in our mind uh, 
the, at the academic level, things are still uh, rather uh, domestic or national, and the systems are rather separated. And in fact, what, what, what was missing at the European level was the idea of networking beyond the national boundaries. And so I think the strong ideas behind the European society was to overcome these, these boundaries. And, and the first group of people working on that, and we were a member of the steering committee, were uh, precisely trying to, to find uh, their way in this, uh, in this direction. It was possible also thanks to the support of the EUI, uh, first in terms of hosting some meetings, but also providing some of the logistics to make these meetings uh, possible and to develop the steering committee and also to help uh, um, organizing the first uh, the inaugural conference in, in 2004. But there again, I mean, NYU was of great help because at this time it was Phil Ralston uh, leading the steering committee and uh, he, he could uh, um, uh, rent the Villa La Pietra in Florence to give the inaugural conference this, uh, this great image. One of the main ideas was that uh, in the world, in the nowadays world, it was important to offer young people opportunities to network beyond the national setting. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, the ASIL had to be attractive. And to be attractive, you cannot have only young, you have only to attract seniors who might be more reluctant because uh, they are more involved in their uh, domestic uh, environment where they get, the, to a certain extent, their power and uh, influence. And so, uh, in a way, I would think that uh, your initiative, jo Joseph, with Philip and people like Bruno Sima, but also Francesco Francioni, Pans Peter Nold, and, uh, and, and so on, uh, it was a kind of philanthropic enterprise to push for this European society for the sake of, of, of young people. And uh, I think it, it worked well. I mean, the inaugural conference in 2004 was a pure delight for most of the people. And uh, I would say, I wouldn't say it was the easy part, but the following part was to be able to, to raise both the membership and, and, and the money available for the society, because it's very difficult to go for events uh, without having a bit of, uh, a, a bit of money. And this is, um, I mean, this is also where uh, there was a kind of a, a difficulty coming from the fact that the European society was very different from the American Society of International Law. At the beginning, it was decided to have a biennial conference for ISIL because we didn't have the forces to do more. But at the same time, how to keep the membership for the years when there was no event? And this was the beginning, I mean, uh, between 2004, 2006. And this is why in 2006, it was decided to go for research forum. The research forum being an in-between event between two biennial conferences, because uh, the idea was to try to keep a momentum so that people would remain members or else you had members every two years. And so it was quite complicated. And so I remember that, for example, one milestone, which was very important for us, was the first 400 members of the society. Now that the society is far above the thousand members, I mean, it looks uh, not important, but at this time, having 400 members was really, uh, really uh, important. 
In terms of identity, uh, one uh, main challenge that the European society faced was the linguistic issue. And it was not only because the French were reluctant. I mean, you, you always like to have someone playing the, 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 the role of the bad uh, uh, guy. But uh, in fact, there was more than that. Uh, the issue uh, was uh, how many languages would be involved in the European society. And, um, and not only because we are all aware that English uh, is... Uh, dominant, but the issue was uh, the extent to which it would exclude a whole range of people, of European people, from being involved because they didn't master the language well enough. And uh, so this was a, an important challenge, which was not completely solved by saying that the society would be bilingual uh, French-English. And the other challenge was that the American society has a very specific economic model uh, on the basis of which the European society cannot function. And so um, the European society needed to attract members so the membership fees could not be too expensive, but it meant that every time that an event had to be organized, it was for the organizers to find the money because the ASIL was not able to finance the events. So this uh, very different economic model, but also the diversity of this membership and the fact that you have to overcome this uh, still existing uh, strong boundaries between uh, domestic academic settings uh, made of ASIL a very specific endeavor compared to the American Society of International Law. May I turn to Faye as the current president? Do you want to add anything to what we heard from Helene? Uh, yes, thank you, Joseph. Uh, yes, I, I was in Florence in uh, 2004, I remember, as just as a young scholar, and I remember the excitement. What I wanted to add to uh, Hélène's, um, uh, what Hélène has said about how it was an idea of networking be beyond uh, national boundaries, it seemed to me that it was also seen in the beginnings uh, as an effort to bring um, the European traditions together with the Anglo-Saxon, I mean, Anglo-Saxon and continental, bringing these two traditions together under uh, one umbrella. Uh, th that's how uh, I also perceived it at the time, because, of course, um, in the American society, it's, you know, a, a national, we can say, society, despite the fact that it's huge. But the, the European idea was, yes, to, to bring scholars together who were within you know, their own um, maybe national uh, institutions and societies of international law, but also to try to um, uh, um, bring the Anglo-Saxon and the continental tradition uh, of international law uh, and bring that to, to a forum of its own where it could express itself. So I would add that to Ellen, and that was my impression, you know, as an, as an outsider at that time, uh, a young outsider, and coming, of course, from a French background at the time, um, I think I would add that to, to Ellen's perspective. Uh, now, on the linguistic issue, I remember, if I recall, but you were more... Um, uh, competent jo Joseph, 
Uh, even the, the journal had tried to use many European languages in the beginning, if I recall correctly, uh, including French and I think German as well uh, in the journal. Uh, the society, of course, had this issue of, okay, we're European, but, you know, what will we do with uh, uh, languages? The final, I mean, solution between, at that time, was to to go to a, to a bilingual society with uh, the main languages being English and French, and that is written in, in the statutes of this society, uh, even though, of course, English is uh, becoming dominant. Uh, through the times. So that would be uh, my, my perspective on this, the history. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm curious about, first, the governance structure of ESIL, and in particular, given the, this ambition of multiculturalism within the European context, to what extent has the membership a way of influencing the direction and the project of the society? So back to you, Ellen. Yes, th thank you. For sure, it had uh, evolved through through time. Uh, for sure, at the beginning, uh, the European society was uh, mostly a Western European society. And one of the first challenges that we tackle uh, was to attract people from uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and... Um, in terms of, of governance, uh, I would say that the steering committee more or less uh, slipped into uh, uh, the, the, the first board of the European Society of International Law. A few people uh, stepped down, but most of the people who were in the steering committee remain on, on, on the board. And uh, in, in terms of, of composing the, the, the board, uh, w one dilemma which was uh, there at this time was that uh, it was important to have uh, on board people who had a reputation beyond the borders, I would say, and, uh, and uh, would uh, play a role in attracting uh, new members, but also to stick to the mantra of the European society to be open to young people and not to have a board exclusively composed of, uh, I would say, uh, dinosaurs of international law. So, um, but at the same time, the issue is having young people who are connected because uh, once again we 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 meet this idea of uh, of uh, networking so uh, this was the first balance that we tried to find uh, in the board uh, the second uh, challenge was about uh, elections and have people standing for uh, elections uh, not all people are keen to do so depending on the countries you have a tradition which can be more or less strong regarding uh, co-option and uh, the idea for running for election is not necessarily very popular depending uh, the country from which you 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 come so uh, it was about uh, incentivizing people to 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 be candidates and to accept the idea that they might be candidate and not be elected and so that the elections didn't become a kind of a closed shop and uh, and become the equivalent to to a, a corruption and this was heavily discussed in florence i remember i mean uh, discussions about uh, that whether uh, it was really democratic or uh, uh, but then, uh, even if there were always more uh, people uh, who, who um, were candidates than slots uh, to be um, to be filled, 
there you could see that it's really depended on the it's also depended a lot on the origin of the people and whether they were known internationally and you may have very good international lawyers coming from countries and small countries and not having had the opportunity to have a kind of of uh, uh, international uh, reputation so um what was not very clear also at the beginning was the length of the of the president term and uh, so when Philip Alston, because he was going back to New York, decided to step down in 2004, Bruno Zima became president of the European Society. And after two years, he didn't want to go on with the position. And this was the time when I was uh, elected. But then we realized, for example, that the statutes were not clear about the length of the, of the term. And so I was present for four years, but I could realize that it was quite long. But at the same time, there were questions about uh, um, what happens at the American society, where you have a term of two years, but you have a president-elect. And uh, two years is a rather short term. And uh, every time you want to launch initiatives and develop them, two years is, is rather short. And uh, it gives it to the governance a kind of a scattered uh, uh, appearance. And so um, this is a dilemma, I think, which is not completely overcome uh, now. Four years too long, uh, two years probably a bit too short, especially because uh, even if there are vice presidents in the European society, you don't have the same uh, rolling up logic which exists in the American society with the president-elect, which is who is known one year in advance. And so you have a vision of a continuity for the society. Thank you. I'm actually going to turn to Marco and ask for, as a former Secretary General and Vice President, his uh, pers perspective on governance and uh, membership influence. Uh, thanks, Joseph. So, so there is a, a big dilemma uh, that, that Helen pointed out to, which is um, if you want to have competitive elections, the people who are really interested in standing for these elections are relatively junior or mid-career people. And the more senior people for, let's say, frequently for reasons of vanity, do not necessarily want to expose themselves to the sort of scrutiny of an electorate. And that leads to a problem, which is that most of the board then gets composed of people who are mid to junior, and they don't have often the oomph you need to have to perform some of these roles effectively. You can't be president uh, of the society the way, for example, Faye or Hélène or or Bruno Sima, or, or, or um, Laurence, or Andre Noel Kemper have been, for example, if you can't, like, you know, ring some high-powered partner in a law firm and ask them for money, for example. I can't do that, right? So you need to be at a fairly senior level. Um, so that's one problem. But if you do a co-optation system the way the American society effectively does, it's an old boys club. And what happened over time is that the governance of the society has become more democratic. The elections have become more political. Some people find that a bit distasteful, but that's just how it is. If you want to have competitive elections, people are going to form coalitions. They're going to lobby. You know, you, you go to a conference and you, you get nudges, you know, do you want to vote for me? Whatever. And it's fun and it's OK. And to, to that extent, you know, the governance of the society works reasonably well. Because the society, however, doesn't have a huge amount of administrative support, it has more and more uh, administrative support, but the people who sit on the board actually have to work, which is another 
point that disincentivizes very senior, senior people. So if you sit on the board, it's like an admin job at the university. And if you are president or vice president, or secretary general, it's like a big admin job. And so take, that takes a, a, a lot of time because everybody essentially has a portfolio they have to work on. So the people who run the board, uh, you know, they, they, they do invest quite a bit of work into it. There are rewards though. There's a lot of very nice tourism and dinners and so on, but, but you see how that works. So what you're telling me is that the people who have oomph are lazy and the people who are not lazy don't have oomph. I'm just teasing. I'm yes. just teasing. Yes, quite uh, right. Can we go to a follow-up question or the third question? We've already heard quite a lot about the membership and your ambitions for the membership. Could, could you just give our listeners a little bit of data? What is the membership? What is the size of the membership? What is its geographical distribution? Maybe, Faye, maybe you want to take a shot at this first. Yes. Well, we currently have around 1,200 members. So membership uh, as Alain said in the beginning, has been increasing over the years. Um, I mean, 400 was, uh, you know, a big number in 2006. Uh, but the, since then, it has been steadily increasing. Of course, we could, we could have more. I mean, we're trying to be as open as we can to membership. Now, when I, if you do a breakdown, and this is just uh, from what I, you know, recall, there are people who come from many different countries, I think a, a, a hundred different countries, if we go by nationality, okay? But of course, most members are based in uh, academic or other institutions in uh, the European space. So, um, so we do have representation from, you know, many countries. We, we would like to have more, especially from uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and we're working on that. Um, then, well, gender-wise, I think um, it's balanced. And what we're seeing is an increase uh, of membership f uh, of, of, younger, uh, uh, of younger scholars, uh, meaning that the, the, the uh, age, um, the average age uh, appears to be dropping. Uh, that, of course, is due to the fact that younger scholars you know, do want to be involved um, or have to be involved in today's current, you know, academic situation in societies of, of this sort. Um, but what I want to insist on is that I think my colleagues also uh, will agree there has been a Western kind of dominance and we, we have been trying uh, to, to just increase and reach out to Central and Eastern Europeans. It's not easy, not technically, uh, it, it's not easy. I mean, in, in really technical terms, sometimes it's not easy uh, for people from other um, areas, you know, to become members, I mean, to pay their dues, to pay fees. I mean, things are very complicated. I had the opportunity to visit um, many institutions uh, on a trip to, to to Moscow, where I met with many institutions from, um, you know, this the, the whole area, and you know, some issues are just just practically technical. You know, uh, young people might not have uh, the funds or the possibility to to transfer to become members uh, uh, of the society. 
So, Marco, do you want to add anything to the issue of membership? Yes, let me do that as the token Eastern European on the call. But I am the, the, the precise type of Eastern European that Faye was talking about. So I'm an Eastern European who works in the UK and, that, and who has lived in the UK for a long time. So that, that actually tells you, I mean, it tells you a lot of things. So, so as Faye was saying, one of the biggest determinant of membership is money. Somebody needs to pay for it. Normally, it's either you personally or more frequently, perhaps your institution. And if you are in a relatively poorer country that does not have uh, money at its institutions to pay for these types of fees, it's unlikely you will become a member or you will become a member one year because you want to come to one specific event or conference or something like that, right? You will not be a member for 10 years. So one thing that the, the society has done to sort of alleviate that, this was done, I think, four years ago, uh, was that it introduced different tiers of fees so that people from developing countries have uh, a, a, you know, a reduced level of fees. But that's, that doesn't address some, some of these issues, right? Another big problem, the reason why there is a Western dominance, and not just a Western dominance, but a UK dominance, a Dutch dominance, a Scandinavian dominance in some respects, is that these are open academic markets. And so people like me, I can come to the UK and I can teach in the UK. It's not easy for me to come to Germany, even if I spoke good German, or to Fran France, even if I spoke good French, right? Because the markets are closed in many different ways. And that's why when you, when you look at the UK in particular, you see a whole, you know, zoo of people from all over the world who have essentially converged on these institutions, which provide a lot of support for them, which allow them to to, to join the society and partake of all the different things that the society offers to them. So in much the same way as, I don't know, if you went to a physics society, a, a biochemistry society, you would have this type of, of, of bias or, you know, the, the membership would be skewed. It's inevitable that you will have the same thing in, in, in international law society, no matter how much we work to remedy that. So a quick follow-up question to you. A sort of kind of uh, halfpenny economic analysis of law. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't lose money if you selected, say, the poorer countries or institutions and just allowed free membership. Well, yes and no. I mean, there are. We we have been debating this for a while. You know, what kind of money do we need? How do we structure this? There are costs with every member. There used to be bigger costs even when membership was actually associated with an EGIL subscription. So we would have to pay you money, Joseph, for every uh, member we had for free. And, and that, that creates all sorts of issues. So it's not easy, right? I mean, if you look at societies, academic societies all over the world, none of them have come up with a perfect formula to remedy. There, is a, there are structural biases inherent in this that, that you can work on only imperfectly. Let's not pursue this because also I'm mindful of the clock which is running, but I want to ask a very specific question to Ellen. Uh, in Egypt, even when we were bilingual, English-French, we got very few submissions from French scholars. And eventually we moved to English only. And even when we've invited recently, for example, some French scholars to send us articles in French to be published in French, they said, no, 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 if I publish in Egil, I want it in English because I will get a different readership. What is the presence of the French in the membership of the European Society of International Law? 
Is it an important presence or a token presence? It's a token presence, uh, very clearly. Not many French are members of the European society, uh, which can be explained by several factors. One is that... um, I mean, uh, but, uh, there is a strong national society of international law and there is a kind of, of peer pressure to be member of this society first. Second, France is one of these countries where the institutions don't pay for membership fees. So it's uh, out of your own pocket, you know, and the same for conferences. And uh, this is probably one one. Uh, um, element to be added to what Marco said. It's not only about uh, paying the membership fees, it's also about uh, having the funds to attend the conferences or the events, and these are costly events, and so um, whatever you, you, you do for that. So uh, uh, the the this this plays a strong role and and last but not least in the case of French you cannot forget that it's probably one of the countries where people are the, the, the less able to 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 write in 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 English so as you said now uh, more and more people especially in the young want to be published in English to gain a more uh, audience uh, for sure because people are becoming more and more aware that uh, if they write in French they will not be uh, read beyond the the, the French speaking uh, uh, circles. Uh, so, and this is the problem of the the powerful country which have less less and less power. If I can put it like that, so the 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 country is still powerful enough to have its own literature, its own journals, and to have enough of these to to. Uh, for people to always find an outcome for what they publish and they reflect in terms of careers and it remains true that it's better to publish in French in a French journal than to publish in English in an English journal to, to for your career path. It remains true even nowadays. It will change, I think, over the next decade, but it remains true uh, so far. So I, I guess these are the main explanations, and but they do not work only for France. They also work for Spain, for Italy, uh, if, maybe less for Italy because Italy has needed to export a lot of its young academics due to the state of its academic system. But if you do not have this incentive, well, uh, ASIL could play a bit like uh, ASIL, the role of... Uh, Meat market, if I can put it like that, a place where you can connect with the with the future uh, uh, career uh, prospects. Uh, the incentive uh, remains rather low, and so in a nutshell, for a French, Isil remains most of the time too expensive, and so this uh, plays against uh, participating. Also. This is not only political. It it might it may it was political with the older people, I would say. But uh, for the young people, it's not uh, um, political anymore. But the system is still strong enough to to remain self-contained, which is not good. It needs to go a step uh, down further to to become more open. Unfortunately. Thank you. Faye, do you want to add something on this issue? Uh, I agree with what Hélène says and about the, the, the power of uh, the French uh, society um, and the opening of more younger scholars now to English. But I think that perhaps, um, be, I mean, the main goal of the society, 
and Hélène might correct me there, which was to have a bilingual society, actually did not really work. And maybe, to my understanding, some French academics um, might have been upset that this didn't work, in uh, meaning that you know they they could come to the society to the conference, speak in French, um, you know, present their papers in French. And maybe that was also an element, Hélène, uh, which sort of then. Um, kept them a little um, away from the system, except for those who were comfortable uh, in the uh, English language. So I just wanted to add that because, you know, it's just a feeling that I, that I also seem to have. Thank you. Delicate, touchy issue for which there are no easy solutions, as all of you have been saying. And we feel that uh, in uh, uh, Ijo, I would mention that in ICON, we have now taken a bold initiative and from now onwards there will be five issues a year and one issue will be entirely in Spanish. Uh, let's see how this experiment works. Uh, ISIL of course is famous for its annual meetings which are splendid but a scholarly society has a broader agenda than just holding an annual meeting once a year. So Marco, can you tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about other initiatives and scholarly activities that the European Society of International Law engages in? Thanks, Joseph. I, 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 I would start by, by saying that we shouldn't underplay the social aspects of the society, which I think are in this type of, 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 of organization actually the most important ones. People really like coming to these conferences because they see each other, because it's some lovely place, a castle in Naples or something like that, and not in a dreary basement of a hotel like with ASIL. So we should not underplay that. And academically, in terms of real scholarly engagement, a huge conference with a thousand people is never going to be as successful as a small event with 20 people. Right, so the the point of the of ESL's scholarly agenda is not directly to produce cutting edge scholarship. That's not what the society does directly. However, what it does, it facilitates its members organizing various kinds of events where they can actually do that. So we have twenty interest groups on all sorts of topics which do produce cutting edge scholarship, which do meetings in a much smaller format, sometimes at the conference, very frequently outside the conference, now during the pandemic, of course, uh, virtually. And they do do that, right? So they will produce within their specific areas, they will produce uh, important contributions to scholarship. And then the society, which, as, as you said, is not directly linked with the journal, does it have does have its own publications. So the, the main publication today is a series a book series with Oxford University Press, which will contain proceedings from some of the bigger conferences and events, but also from smaller, uh, um, much more focused events. Um, there is also a series called ESL Reflections that uh, is sort of some somewhere midway between a short essay and a blog format and is published on the, on the, on the ESL website. And then there's the ESL SSRN series, which contains a lot of the conference papers. So in fact, you know, the society advances a lot of scholarship, but remember, you know, its main function is not to produce uh, academic work on topics X, Y, and Z. And then that's not what the expectation of the society is. 
Thank you, Marco. Faye, if you want to add anything to this, but maybe it can lead me into my next question. What are the current and future plans of ESIL? Anything exciting in the pipeline? Well, there's always exciting things in the pipeline. Um, but let me add a few things to what um, Marco said. Uh, the I agree with him, and this is, you know, we're not... Um, our main focus is not the production, the academic production, but it is a byproduct. And uh, for quite a few years now, um, the society has been publishing um, papers coming out of the annual conferences in the special book series, which is actually um, quite a, a, um, a good um, a good series. And now what? We really pride ourselves on are the the annual fora, and I wanted to talk a little about them because they are where you know younger uh, scholars present their ongoing work or younger academics, and the, the then we have older, more senior scholars commenting on this work and giving their feedback, and some of these papers, the ones that are good because they go through a, a, a review process are put up to now was the SSRN series, but the new thing now is that we're going to have an in-house production, which will be the uh, uh, on our on the website of the European Society of International Law, where it will be the uh, European Society of International Law paper series. But you also asked me a question, uh, Joseph, I think, on future. Now, future, we, we, we continue the way we're, we're working, I think. What we do want... And we've been trying to do this. Of course, COVID uh, has not been a factor that has made things easier, uh, is to focus on making this a society as inclusive as possible on a uh, pan-European level. Also, to include uh, more, more practitioners. We do have practitioners involved, but we want to focus also on including more practitioners. And coming up already, we have the research forum and uh, Glasgow, post-Stockholm uh, in 2021. Uh, the next annual conference in Utrecht is already, the preparations are underway in 2022, and then in 2023, uh, Aix-en-Provence. Um, we also have a teaching corner, which we're trying to have um, academics come in and present uh, you know, their, their work on teaching, especially from all points of Europe and also from all systems so we can see between us, uh, I mean, as academics, how teaching is done uh, in different parts of, of Europe and the world. Why not? Thank you very much. So I think it would be appropriate to end our conversation inviting Faye to tell us about the forthcoming annual conference in Stockholm. The annual conference, of course, last year was um, postponed to this year. So the annual meeting will be held from the 9th to 11th of September, this time in Stockholm. The overall theme is, has to do with lawmaking. So it's changes in international lawmaking, actors, processes, and impact. We, the conference organizers wanted to, to look into how Apart from the new many norms that are emerging from traditional sources of international law, treaties and custom, uh, etc., there are also new mechanisms and new actors. 
a number of international rules are, are initiated or developed uh, in uh, interagency type of networks, NGOs, corporations, even private entities or transgovernmental networks. And this conference will, will seek to look at these processes and see how they um, how they impact um, uh, international uh, lawmaking uh, in general. Now, let me say that, of course, there will be side events as usual. Um, there will be uh, mentoring events, which um, younger scholars seem to appreciate very much. Uh, there will also be um, a meeting of editors and journals, uh, the European uh, Journal of International Law will also be uh, involved among other uh, journals and, of course, publishers. There will be, um, because Stockholm is the center, of course, of arbitration as well, there will be a special um, um, event on um, ISDS and the future of investment uh, dispute settlement in Europe. We will have a brilliant, I think, keynote welcoming by Marty Koskinemi and Sarah Nowen, and then a closing panel on where we go from here with very distinguished scholars. So, I mean, there is everything. Let me say that this is a hybrid conference, probably the first of its kind, uh, at least in our continent. Uh, we plan to have as many people, or the conference organizers plan to have as many people there as possible in physical presence, um, there with social distancing and everything else. But also they have planned to have speakers or participants uh, to be able to uh, participate through um, um, up online. So they have this whole, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very complicated uh, organization, as you understand, uh, to try to make a hybrid conference. We hope that people will, will come. Everything, of course, depends on the situation. Will there be a lunch buffet with a bit of the Delta variant sprinkled? The Delta variant will not be sprinkled on the lunch buffet. The lunch buffet will be perfect with no Delta variant. Good. Paul Range has reassured us. The yeah. dinner will be yeah. perfect in huge places with no variants involved. Everyone will be checked. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully um, they've been working on it actually not for one year, but for three or four because of the postponement. And let me say that personally, of course, I will be handing over to the next uh, president who will be decided on by the board in September. And uh, I have been mostly a virtual president. So I plan to go to Stockholm at least to, um, you know, if the Delta variant doesn't catch me, I plan to go to Stockholm in person. And so say this was me. Thank you, Joseph. So that is the, the general sort of scheme of things. Thank you. Is it a secret who the next president will be? For the moment, yes. Uh, as per usual, the president is announced at the end of the conference. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Faye, Hélène, and Marco. And uh, whether you plan to attend in person or online, if you haven't registered yet, please do it now. I thank you all, and I hope to see many, many of our listeners, either online or in presence in Stockholm. <laughs>